Well, our moms think we're funny. Hey everyone, I'm Akoni. Hey everybody, this is Turk182. And I'm going to keep that intro in anyway, because that's funny. No, no! <laughs> God damn you! <laughs> I swear. <laughs> you should crab in a barrel, I you swear. You know you better are. by now. <laughs> when, <sighs> when the record button gets hit, it's staying in, baby. Hmm. So, hey everybody, how's it going? Um, thank you for joining us once again as we... Uh, Come to the conclusion of our um, character analysis, character breakdown, peeling back the layers, um, reeling through the years, holding back the tears, uh, as we talk about... Ozymandias. All right, Ozymandias. The world's smartest man. The world's smartest man. Um, uh, Possibly homosexual. Yeah, I'll have to investigate further. I mean, he might call himself the world's smartest man, but to me, you know, he's no more of a threat than, like, you know, the world's smartest termite. <laughs> That's just how I feel about him. Uh, you know what they say, smartest man on the cinder. <laughs> so. uh, why would I save a grill? I no longer have a steak in it. <laughs> I, I, gotta, I gotta find that. that uh, uh, I, I gotta find that, uh, that, 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 that uh, it wasn't wasn't a meme. It was uh, just a cartoon, but it was hilarious. Um, but anyway, yeah, but yeah. Um, Adrian Veidt, uh, the last of the Watchmen, for our character analysis. Yeah, the um, I don't want to say he's the most important, but he's the guy, man. I mean, he's the one. And this whole this whole book is basically a. And I don't want to say about him, but due to him, it's it's all yeah. due to to Vite. I mean, he's the um, he's the one that put everything in motion. Yeah, yeah, like he he's essentially the MacGuffin of the story. He's like what's propelling everything forward. Everybody else is just kind of existing. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they're um, whether they whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, they're all you know. Um, you know, Danton uh, to his fife. Good way of putting it. Oh, thank you. Good point, detective. <laughs> so, so Vite. I was uh, gonna say, where where do we want to start with Vite? You know, we with some of the other people, we were like, like for Rorschach, we said, you know, we we don't want to start with this yet. We don't want to start with that yet. Right, where do we right. want to start with Vite? With Vite, I guess we should start with uh, what we see. When he first comes into the story. Because he's handled the Keen Act differently than any of the other characters. That's true. When the government steps up and says, no more masked fighters, you've all got to come public with your identities. He does it. But then he capitalizes off of it. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, that's me. Now buy my toy line. Now uh, you know, buy, buy my exercise regimen. All this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and he, I mean, he becomes a uh and he becomes a you know uh a multi-millionaire not not that that was ever in question because i mean look what we're talking about here right i mean he's he's the smartest man in the world so yeah. obviously something was going to come of him um uh i i'd say besides uh besides manhattan he's really the only other super of the group um 
I guess you could call him a super. I mean, because even though even though his his abilities are are I don't want to say man made, but they're they're natural. He just happens to have a, a you know a greater intellect than than anyone else mm-hmm. for the time being. You know, yeah, until yeah. someone else smarter comes along, um, or maybe he's not he's not like the world's smartest man, but maybe he's the world's smartest man and most devious man. You know, so, you know, it's like I could like if I took like uh, Stephen Hawkinson and um, let's say um, give me somebody else that's really like Uh, uh, Elon Musk. Is he smart? No, (laughs) I hate I hate to go to like Neil deGrasse Tyson. But so let's let's say uh, let's say Einstein. Right. Okay. Okay. So let's say Stephen Hawkinson and Einstein. And yes, I know his name is Stephen Hawkins. I just use that from Rick and Morty, you know. Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, but, um, so, so what, what separates the two of them? You know, it's, you know, where one will take a situation and I'm not saying that this is the case for, for them, but where one will take a situation and say, okay, let's, I'm going to read this and this is how it plays out logically to here. Mm-hmm. And as smart as I am though, my own moral compass will stop me from seeing beyond, beyond this line. Yeah. Because whatever what lies beyond that line are decisions and thoughts that I don't want to have to make, as where the other person will see beyond that because the um because they're like I'm willing to to cross that line to make that decision. So if let's say we're talking about the um the the atomic bomb, mm-hmm. you know, one person is going to say, okay, we're we're, we're trying to stop the war and. And I'm only willing to go this far because after that, there's going to be like air, there's going to be deaths, there's going to be bloodshed, there's going to be a toll mm-hmm. that I that I don't want to pay. Yeah, yeah. And the other person will go beyond that. So they may both be the same in intellect, but one is willing to to go and think and make decisions beyond the other one. It doesn't yeah. make them any smarter. It's just they're willing to go that that. Um, that extra, you know, that that extra step, um, and I think that's the thing with Vite. He's not necessarily maybe the smartest man in the Watchmen universe. He calls himself that, but he's the one that's going to go and think, you know, past that barrier that other people stop at because he, he definitely lacks the restraint that the average person has. Um, now, my my counterpoint to the argument that he's a super is he did catch a bullet. <sighs> True, but. To that, I would say a guy that's well trained, you know, in his body, he's smart, and and again, he also says, "I didn't." He goes, "I wasn't sure that was going to work." Yeah. So he was like, you know, if someone shoots me, you know, at this at this range, this is what I could possibly catch the bullet if I moved in this fashion. But of course, it's untested. Yeah. You know. So yeah, I guess you'd call him a super. Um, so this is something we haven't, we didn't do with any of the other ones, but I actually, um, when we started, I pulled up the, uh, the Watchmen movie, the Zack Snyder Watchmen movie and it's playing. And I just want to make a note here in each one of Zack Snyder's movies, he normally, well, I shouldn't so say each one the of them. this is the director's cut, yeah? I'm not quite sure. Cause um, it, this fight scene's gone on a little bit longer than what I'm used to. Uh, yeah, two yeah. hours 42. Yeah. That's the director's cut. Uh, oh, and, here's, here's a hidden, uh, smiley face blood spatter that I'd never seen before. Oh yeah, <laughs> I would say in most of Zack Snyder's movies, he puts like a like a nod or a uh, 
um, in a, an homage to some of his other films. Mm-hmm. So when the coffee cup scene is so it hit the door, his apartment number was three zero zero one. Yeah. But when it hits the door, it takes the one off, so it's three hundred. Three hundred, nice. Um. So anyway, uh, I was I was looking here and and watching at the interview that uh, that Vite does. Yeah. Where yeah. he's kind of talking, you know, about all this stuff, and it's it's interesting. Um. Here's a there's a question here. We you know the, the um, where Nova says so. How do you how do you get to be a superhero? Were your parents rich? I mean, did they give you advantages? He goes, no more than I could help. My mother left me a lot of money when she died, but I gave it a charity when I was 17. I wanted to prove that I could accomplish anything I wanted, starting from absolutely nothing. Also, I wanted to free myself of concern for money. Consequently, it's never been a problem for me. To answer your question, you get to be a superhero by believing in the hero within you and summoning him or her forth by an act of will. Believing in yourself and your own potential is the first step to realizing that potential. Alternatively, you could do as John did, fall into a nuclear reactor and hope for the best. On the whole, I think I prefer to stick to my own methods. <laughs> so it's, you know, it, it's kind of interesting where it's like, well, the first step to becoming a hero is to just, you know, think that you're a hero. Believe to be a hero. The kind of like positive affirmation thing, which in itself is like not... It's not incorrect, but just believing that you can do it doesn't mean that you can do it, you know? Right, right. We have so many people out there that believe that they're smart, and it's like, but (laughs) you're not, and you make really bad decisions. Yeah. And this is interesting. He says, um, Nova says, what sort of world do you see it being in the future? And Vite says, that depends upon us. Each and every one of us Futurology interests me uh, interests me perhaps more than any other single subject, and as such, I devote a great deal of time to its study. Even so, technology is progressing at an ever accelerating pace, and by early next century, I would hesitate to predict any limitations upon what we might be capable of. I would say, without hesitation, that a new world's within our grasp, filled with unimaginable experiences and possibilities, if only we want it badly enough. Not a utopia. I don't believe that any species could continue to grow and keep from stagnation without some adversity. But a society with a more human basis where the problems that beset us are at least uh, new ones. Mm-hmm. So, so that's uh, it's kind of interesting when you read that and he says, you know, I don't believe in a utopia. But, you know, at the end of it, you kind of believe that there's a utopia. Right. But he says, but, you know, it's, there has, there, you know, we, you, like I said, you, you can't be stagnant, which I, I agree. You can't be stagnant. Mm-hmm. But what, what new adversities after the last page of Watchmen is he going to introduce? Right, right. Because they're, they're, they're going to be, because he's basically running a show now. People don't know, but he's running a show. So what is he going to introduce? Because... No one, no invite. If he, whatever he introduces as an adversity, he's already found the answer to. Right. You're right. going to struggle with it because that's what he wants you to do. Mm-hmm. But he already has the answer. So, like, so if you don't come up with an answer fast enough, and when I say fast enough, like within like the number of years he thinks there should be one, or right. if if the struggle is going on too long to where people are starting to to drift, you know. 
uh, away from focusing on this to other things like where it's like, okay, this is unsolvable. So now my attention's going elsewhere. Right. Then that's when he would drop the solution. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I wonder what comes next. What comes after the squid? What comes after the energy crisis is over? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Which I guess the show would kind of uh, would kind of explore that, right? So that's what I love about the Watchmen TV series, um, which is in the TV series, it just inexplicably, randomly rains baby squids. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about that. And like it was like they're they're being alert and people roll up their windows and these baby squids just rain down and then like they, it would like rain for I don't know, maybe a couple minutes, and then they would they would just like like evaporate or, or you know, they would just melt away into nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea is that 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 you know this one squid, one time, seems like a fluke. You know, fifteen, uh, five, ten years later. Right, you know, right. I no longer have a threat of that. But if it occasionally rains, baby squids, like the threat is still there. Yeah. Um. Again, that though, that in itself though isn't enough. But there has to be something more. Right. In right. the TV, in the TV show though, Os uh, has been removed. He's actually in a prison hmm. and it's really, it's really odd. This prison that he's in where he has these like these, and it's, it's, not, it's almost like, like in a prison, like it's almost like he's in retirement, but then you realize that these people, um, that are, um, uh, they are like the, the maid and the butler that attend to him. Right. Um, basically he goes to the exact same thing every day hmm. and these people are clones and he randomly killed them for different reasons and stuff. It's it's weird, but then it all makes sense when you watch the series. It all makes sense ties together. But yeah, so yeah. That, this is is not answered in that TV series, but in a sense, it's almost like um, it's it's almost like he had put himself in a position where he no longer felt challenged, and he hmm. needed a new challenge. Yeah, you know. Something, you know, and the thing is, when you have a guy like that, and I think this is probably you know, kind of going back to Osmanis himself is, I think this is one of the, one of the, the problems of being the smartest man in the world is like, once you get to a point, like at the end of, of Watchmen, where he has kind of created what we would immediately, you know, mistake as a utopia. Right, right. That when you get to that point, uh. Like, the, if I've solved all the problems that have been presented to me by the world, and I'm the smartest man in the world, the only other problems that I can present are ones that I make myself, but then if I make them myself, I already have a solution. Right. So right. I don't have a challenge because there has to be someone smarter than me to create a problem or a challenge for me to solve. Yeah. And I don't have it. And I think that could drive someone mad. It's like playing chess with yourself. Right. You know, it's it. You 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 think that it um, that it would be fun or you know, easy or whatever, but it's like no, it's um, it's not. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, I, and we've we've talked before that um, you know, there, there's not a ton to really say about Vite because so much of what he's all about is established in the last chapter. 
where he basically says, here's who I am, here's why I did it. Beyond that, he's not really in the book that much, to be totally honest. So, but, so let's sit on some, on some key points of Vite, because there's a lot to really be said about him. And and I think the... Um, I think that the thing with Vite, you say you, everything's kind of really revealed in the last chapter, is that even though we don't see a lot of Vite, we don't know a lot of about Vite. And so, for example, everything we learn about a comedian, we learn from other people. Right, right. But Vite knows all of that. Even though these people think that there's that these are their stories, mm-hmm. he knows them all. It's like like not to say there's no secrets from him, but like he he he's he already knows that. So you think this is like a like let's say for example, um, comedian killing a woman in, in Vietnam, right? Man, Hat's not gonna tell that story. He's not gonna sit around and be like, oh, it's like you know, <laughs> gather around, kiddies. <laughs> Yeah. Uncle Doc, Uncle Doc, tell us about what happened when you were in Vietnam. Yeah. It's like, well, oh, oh, and one time I was in this bar and the comedian, oh, you're not going to believe this, right? Like, no, that's a that's a story between two. And who else saw that exchange? You know, no one, you know, in, in quotes, but Vite knows it. Yeah. You know, he yeah. knows that. And um, and you kind of find that and when in the end when, you know, when they're going through this, like he's got files and everything. You know, and right. he even talks about, you know, like, I researched this. I researched that. I knew all. So he knows all this stuff. Right. Yeah. Whether he says anything about it, or even does anything about it right away, he knows. And and that's the I think the, the interesting thing about him is that you don't you aren't aware that he knows until until the end where it's like he knows so much. Right, so right. what I want to do is I want to go to um I want to go to the funeral where. Um, Captain Metropolis is there, mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting if we look at that scene. So I'm looking at um, at page nine of uh, was this chapter two, chapter three? Uh, should be chapter two. Yeah, chapter two. Um, so we've got the comedian now in his new outfit. Rorschach is still regular normal Rorschach. You can tell by the way he's standing. His coat's open. He mm-hmm. looks clean. Hands in his pockets. Night Owl's there. Uh, what's really great about this scene is that uh, Manhattan's already scoping out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, uh, well, what's her name? Uh, so, Marie, yeah, yeah, chasing jailbait. And uh, comedian's not really paying attention, and Osmanis is there, and, and he's you know he's looking kind of rather tent. But Captain Metropolis is the one that really looks so out of out of place there yeah amongst the others costume wise he's he, he's very much an old school like you know this is how we handle ruffians you know yeah he he looks like a pulp hero right it's very very pulpy um so um and of course that's where rorschach has the normal speech bubble too is the next page yep so he's like you know calling themselves a crime buster so you know osmanius is you know is just this listening to all this and then the first time he speaks is, you know, um, after comedian makes a couple comments and then he says, and, um, and Rorschach and he goes, surely that's just an organizational problem, you know, where the right person coordinating the group, you know, and then that's when, you know, the comedian steps up and, and he starts talking about, you know, this is the world, you know, you don't really live it or, um, you don't, you don't know how, how things go. And I think that that was probably, and this is for for a guy that's really smart, which you see a lot of uh, people that are really smart, but they see things and they know things, but they haven't really lived them and experienced them. You know, right? And it's like those people that 
that uh, orchestrate like tactics and war and strategy from, you know, from, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles away, right, you know, in a right. room, but have never actually been on the battlefield where he's never actually been, quote unquote, in this shit. He's never lived in a real world, even though he, you know, when you're a, a, a genius and you, I give away all my money at the age of 17 to make my own way, but you're a genius. Mm-hmm. You made your own way or probably back to where you started from within two years. Right. You know, so right. you didn't, you weren't really struggling like other people because you already, even from the time he gave away his money, his fortune, he started from a blank slate. He already had a plan. He had something you know, orchestrated in his head. He knew yeah, where he was yeah, going. Yeah. But when a comedian is like, you know, it's like, you don't understand Like you don't, you don't live in the real world. And it was, he says, uh, as man says, I think I'm as well informed as anyone given uh, correct handling. None of the world's problems are insurmountable. All it takes is a little intelligence. And he's like, you know, and that's when comedians like, you know, do you think that this is it? Like, you've got all the knowledge there, but you don't have any of the practicality of it. Right, right. It's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Right. And and that's what I think puts Osmanis in his past. Like, he's like, yeah, I, I, I don't have that. I don't have the, like, I know it, but... I, you know, it's like, I expect things to go this way because logically, and when I put all the pieces together, like it mathematically, it goes this way. But the one thing I'm forgetting is the human response. Right. You right. know, especially when a person you expect, when a person's pushed so far, you expect them to act this way, but sometimes they don't, you right. know, and, and that's, and I think that's what he's, that's what he learns from this interaction right here, especially from the comedian. And here's the one thing about this is if you look at it, this is comedian um, pre Scar. Oh yeah, yeah. So it had to be before Nam. Wow. And I think that's when Osmandius really took a step and was like, he stopped like he stopped looking at everything as like as numbers, right? Right. Uh, and equations, and started looking at them as being people. Hmm. And that changed everything. I think that that changed everything for him. And of course, the last words of the flashback are, is uh, somebody has to do it. Don't you see? Somebody has to save the world. Hmm. So, yeah. So then he's he's kind of out of the picture for a little while after that. Um, which it's interesting. Like the first few times you read through the book, it doesn't really feel out of place. It's just like, well, he's the rich guy, you know? Right. He, he's up in his tower. He doesn't have to really be down here involved. Because ostensibly, like on the surface, he's he's one of the few who's not fucked up. Which, I mean, I guess he's fucked up in his own way when you look through it again. But You know, it's interesting here when you look at um, page 16... You know, which we're not we're not going to talk anymore about sixteen and seventeen. Cause, you know, as much as we love those <laughs> love those pages, but when we look at um when we look at um at page sixteen, you've got Osmandius, Doctor Manhattan, and you've got the Night Owl. Yeah, right? all right there. And anybody at the funeral that looked at this is okay. Um. I've got Osmandius, or, you know, Adrian Veidt, who used to be the hero called Osmandius. Right. They are front and center at the coffin. Dr. Manhattan, obviously, you know, superhero. And then I got this guy here 
who else could this guy be? I mean, right. they're right there. Like, they're all right there. And, and, and it's not, it's not like anyone's questioning the other person, like, you know, how, how, how did you know him? Why, like, why were you close to this guy? Right, right. And even though no one knows who the, this guy was the comedian, though, you put those three of them together, it's like, who else could he have been? Right, you yeah. Know? Like, like, people should have put two and two together. It's like, well, wait a minute. Why, why these guys show up? But I think the thing is that the people there at the funeral, like, they're they're all either going to be military, you know, because of um, because of uh, you know, uh, comedians' military background. Right. In which case, they wouldn't ask any questions. Um, or I, I guess that was it. I mean, I don't think he would have really had any other friends. So that would have just been that they would just been just military guys. And I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, they were just you know. It is my understanding, sir, that you're not allowed to ask. Me so, so, yeah, like, he doesn't show up when uh, Manhattan goes to Mars. Because mm-hmm. uh, technically he's already there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, after Manhattan goes to Mars and Dan and Lori uh, start spending time together, then you have the scene with the assassin. Well, um, I was going to say, we've got uh, when Rorschach comes to visit it. Oh, yeah, when Rorschach visits Moloch. No, when Rorschach visits uh, Osmandius. Well, yeah, that's at the very beginning. That's chapter one. Right. I was well, I was going to go back to that um, because there's um, there's there's just like like a little bit of um, of here when when they're talking. So you know, the uh, Rorschach just shows up, which I think is just interesting how he just comes up the side of the building, you know, and oh, he's there, but he leaves through the through the, through the window. Um, I like he's like if you know, I says the comedian's dead. But why? You know, it's like, you were always supposed to be the world's smartest man, Vite. You tell me. (laughs) That's such a great line. Like, why are you asking me? Like, you should already know the answer to this, right? Right. Like, like, why are you asking me to go solve a crime that, you know, technically you should already know the answer (laughs) to? Um, I like this. Like, I never claim to be anybody special, Rorschach. I just have uh, some overenthusiastic PR men. And it's like, yeah, but... that's not quite true. You have like claimed yeah. to be somebody special. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the more the more I see of this this playing in the background, I, I don't think I've ever seen the director's cut of this because these are a lot of scenes I don't recognize. Really? Yeah, I need to watch that. Um I like how Rorschach judges him. Um like, you know, he says, because uh, this goes back to what you were talking about Rorschach before, when he's like, you know, you know, I'm not here to, to you know, the the guy was a, was a hero. or oh, so yeah, yeah. I'm not here to, How he, he was a patriot. I'm not here to pass judgment on the possible moral lapses of a patriot. Uh, you know, Vite calls comedian Nazi and he goes, he stood up for his country, Vite, never let anybody retire him, you know, never cashed in on his reputation, never set up a company selling uh Posters and diet books and toy soldiers based on himself never became a prostitute. If that makes him a Nazi, you might as well call me a Nazi too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Rorschach. (laughs) (laughs) Lamb. So here's something very interesting about this scene that we never, because we talked about this a lot um, kind of indirectly. But if you look there, Rorschach takes his hat off. Yeah. In the building. And it's only when he goes to leave that he puts his hat back on. Yeah. That's that's kind of it's kind of telling about him, but anyway, um, yeah, uh, it's it's just his face. <laughs> the mask is his face. 
So this is interesting here. He says, Rorschach, I know we were never friends, but even so, you're being unfair. Nobody retired me. I chose to quit adventuring and go public two years before the police strike made the Keen Act necessary. And he goes, yes, good timing. I came here to warn you about the mass killer so you didn't end up the smartest man in the morgue. But I guess there's worse things to end up as be seeing you. So he says, I chose to do all this stuff before the Keen Act made it necessary. Mm-hmm. So was it that he saw me, the writing on the wall? Or, or was it that he made the Keen Act? Did he orchestrate that? Yeah. To get them out of the way? Maybe so. That's that's an interesting thought. And then we've got there, um, you know, on the desk, as he's looking out the window, on the desk it says, uh, you know, uh, nuclear doomsday clock stands at 5 to 12, you know, weren't experts. Uh, Geneva talks uh, to discuss, like, it said Geneva um, talks to a U.S. reference to discuss Dr. Manhattan. It's like, and I wish I could read what's on that computer screen there. Yeah, yeah, I was I was looking closer at it, but it's all just squares. So, so you, you know, when you look at him, it's like, and, and you, we could just be reading more into it, but I kind of have to ask, like, how much, like, how far back did his planet? We, we, you know, you and I said that, you know, from the moment that Comedian did all this stuff and he set the map on fire and left, right, mm-hmm. that that's really kind of what started to spark this idea of, like, how do you make the world better? Right. You know, it's right. not through what these guys are doing here, Um and in some way, like, Vite had to have thought that that being a part of the Crime Busters, you know, was a good idea to fight crime and to save the world, like, starting at street level. And then, like, you know, as we start to eradicate the street crime, yeah. and then we'll move up, you know, like, in, in his mind. Again, just because you're the smartest man in the world doesn't mean you have all the answers. It's right. just that, you know, you can look at a problem, you can solve it, but, you know, you have to be able to recognize the problem. Right, right. So at that moment there, he realized that that the street stuff was small time. The bigger problem was this. If you eliminate the bigger threat, you eliminate the smaller threats. Right, you know, right. so there's no street crime if I solve the energy crisis, you know, problem. Yeah. If, you know, if we don't have big wars, then, you know, that makes people generally happier. They have jobs. They have this. That eliminates the street crime. So it's, it's that the, the kind of like crime equivalent of like a trickle down theory. Right, only right. In, in real life, that actually makes sense. Um, so, so then I, you have to wonder, like, how far back did his plan start? Like, I think it germinated there, right? That was the mm-hmm. inception. And then was it like getting the people out of the way so he could start to enact stuff? Because if you've got Dan running out being the night out, you've got Dr. Manhattan doing his thing. You're in my way for my plan. I need you guys out of the way. You know, I need I need you in a place where you're controlled and contained. Right, right. If I get night out off the street, you know, if I get the comedian, you know, doing well, he's doing government stuff anyway, so I don't really have to worry about him. Right, right. Doc Manhattan, if if I take you and put your you your your talents and your powers to other use, which is not out there in the streets blowing people up in nightclubs. Right. Then you all are both, con- you're all contained in a way that allows me to do what I need to do. Rorschach, you're, you're not a part of this equation at all. Right. Like, no, no, what you do 
like Rorschach never rises above, except for this part, he never rises above street level. Right. So whatever you do is not going to impact my master plan. Right, right. So if I enact the Keen Act and I'm ahead of the I'm ahead of the curve, right? So by by revealing myself two years earlier, no one's looking at me. I've already put all my cards on the table. Right. Now all you guys are going to hiding. And but now what I've done is I put you all in a place where I know where you are and I can see you and you're not in my way. Right. Yeah. So I kind of feel like maybe he was really responsible for the Keen Act that because that was what he needed to do to get the place, the those pieces, the wild cards in the right spot so he could do what he needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking here in the last chapter or I guess second. Yeah. Second to last chapter. Um, page 18. Uh, he says, um, I'm trying to improve the world like when I started out. My first case made it seem possible to end justice by demolishing crime syndicates. This notion that criminals monopolized evil was itself demolished by my second case. Researching my masked predecessors, I investigated the mid-50s disappearance of Hooded Justice, an operative government sources revealed had tried unearthing him back then reporting failures. Unearthing the operative, tracking him to Dockland, proved easier. Edward Blake. As intelligent men facing lunatic times, we were very alike, despising each other instantly. Um, goes over their encounter. Uh, his, his fight with the comedian... Where, where else is it that he talks about the meeting? Where he talks about the meeting? Oh, here we go. Yeah, so over on page 19, um... I fought only the symptoms, leaving the disease itself unchecked. I despised myself, my sham crusade, knowing mankind's problems, I blinded myself to them. I felt helpless against forces greater than any I'd anticipated. Too cowardly to confront my anxieties, I had life's black comedy explained to me by the comedian himself at the Crime Busters fiasco in 66. I'm sure you remember, he discussed nuclear war's inevitability, described my future role as the smartest guy on the sender, and opened my eyes. Only the best comedians can accomplish that. I remember the charred map between my fingers, Nelson saying, someone's got to save the world, his tremulous complaining voice. That's when I understood. That's when it hit me. I love that line that you just said there is like only the best comedians can do that. Yeah. You yeah. know, which is like when you like if you look at like any kind of like documentary or, or not necessarily documentary, but when comedians are talking, they're like, you know, the job of a comedian is to tell a joke, but also to open your eyes to stuff like, you know, the best comedians tell a joke about what's going on. It's, you know, it's that spoonful of sugar to show you like this is what's really going on. I can make light of it so that you can accept it easier, and then afterwards you look and be like, oh shit, yeah, this is really what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Only in the case of the comedian, like he's a comedian in name only. That's true, yeah. But yeah, it looks like he talks a little bit more on 21. It seems like he uh, he started working the plan right away. Because he says that he'd been brutally brought nose to nose with mankind's mortality, and so uh, his first step was to stand back as far as he could to view the problem from a fresh perspective. His vista widening with his comprehension to see east and west locked in an escalating arms spiral, the mutual terror and suspicion mounting with the missiles, making the possibility of disarmament progressively disarmament progressively more remote. So it seems like as soon as they had that crime busters meeting, he just started thinking, and right. that started building the plan. And uh, so it's like so. 
uh, from what you were just saying, he only he'd only fought two crimes up until then. Yeah, yeah, that's what it seems like. And then he's like, "Yeah, this is not working." And really, that second crime was just him running into the comedian. And of course, the comedian quote unquote mistook him for a villain and tried <laughs> to beat the shit out of him because it's the comedian. And yeah. See, he talks about, like at the bottom of page 21, he talks about the mathematics of the situation. Sooner or later, conflict was inevitable. Without a practical solution at hand, what use is it to suddenly notice the perils of the situation? So, yeah, he, like, he got started on it, like, from 1966 on up. And then, so, you know, it's kind of like the, like the, uh, Darth Sidious and Pur Palpatine thing, where it's like, you know, eighteen years, mm-hmm. you know, eighteen years. I'm just slowly putting all the pieces together to enact my plan, and it's uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, I I think you and I talked about this um, uh, for for several decades. Uh, James Cameron had wanted to make um, the movie uh, Battle Angel Alita. Which of mm-hmm. course became yeah. the lead of Battle Angel, yeah, yeah. and I think it was maybe around the time of Terminator Two, he was saying like, like yeah, um, like one of my next movies is going to be like you know an adaptation of the the manga Battle Angel Alita, right? And he he kept it and he kept talking about it, kept talking about it, kept talking about it, um, and I think that 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 even came before Avatar, like <laughs> where he was talking about making this this movie, yeah. So we don't get we don't get Battle Angel Leader or Lead a Battle Angel for you know like twenty years or so later, right? Right. Because he was like, I had to wait until the technology existed to make the movie the way I saw it, right? You right. Know? And he could have made it any time, you know, between then. Even even when you look at like what he did with Terminator Two, you know, what he did with Avatar, it's like it's for my vision. We're still not quite there yet, so he's right. holding on to this thing forever, which is kind of interesting. And you kind of, and you know, it's like when you look at something like like a Darth Sidious, you look at like an Adrian Veidt, and you're thinking, you know, like like who who could who could just like for just work that slowly over time, mm-hmm. and then you say, well. Look! Look at James Cameron. You know, yeah, you know. Yeah. In this case, he's not working anything, but kind of he is. Like kind of the stuff he did for creating, like, um, like a uh, uh, Avatar, where I say he created, but you know, working with the technology to be able to say, you know, I've got this special camera here right. that shows me, you know, not fully done, but what you guys look like in your CGI forms. As I'm recording you just in your regular selves with your dotted faces and stuff like that, that's amazing. Right. You know, right. and you're like, and he kind of helped to pioneer that because he needed it for that, for the movie. Right. Which, I'm, I mean, just if you just think about that, like, I can look on the screen here and as you're moving, it's rendering you in this image that, you know, mm-hmm. or a, a rough version of that's That's, that's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then you look at something like like Vite and like I said in Palpatine where like I'm slowly putting all this stuff together and I have to do it slow because it has to stay under the radar. Right, right. You know, and so I have to move at you know at this this rate to to you know to make sure 
And, and even though I want things to move faster, it has to take its time. Right. And part of that for Vite is also like, you know, the, the, the clock, the doomsday clock is slowly ticking, counting, counting towards midnight. And you, and so you have to wonder if somewhere along the way, did he do little things to keep the hand from moving faster? Than he needed to, like keep it from getting one step closer because I'm not right there yet, right. or was he, or was everything calculated to the point to like you know, and I was like maybe he had everything ready right where it needed to be, but he's like I can't do it yet. A minute to midnight is not close enough. Hmm. I have to wait until we get thirty seconds to midnight, till we get like ten seconds to midnight. Because that's when you're the most desperate, and that's when you're going to be the most susceptible to what I have to offer you. Yeah. So did he? Was he already ready, just waiting to drop the bomb, or did he like slow things down to get right to where he wanted to? You know, it's not a coincidence that we were at this stage when he just happened to be ready. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, everything's everything's orchestrated. That's what he keeps saying. Yeah. In that chapter. So um, I was moving, uh, going on to um, to uh, chapter five, okay, page thirteen. When we when we see Vite again, and he's preparing to for a talk with a toy company. Okay, so the the hitman, right? Yeah. So at this point here, uh, how far are we, by the way? Uh, forty minutes. Okay. So, so at um at this point here, what we're looking at is. He's had his conversation with Rorschach, and Rorschach's like, you know, hey, at least I didn't, um, um, at least I didn't, you know, whore myself out and all this kind of stuff. Right, right. So Vite's getting ready. He's gonna have a. He's gonna be meeting with these toy guys, and they and um, and they're like, you know, the his secretary, um, she says, you know, uh, the toy people they want some new characters in the Osmandius line, maybe some of your major villains. And he goes, the major villains are all dead. You know, and and the whole idea is like, well, you need some villains, some someone for your for your toys to fight, you know. And he's like, well, the major villains are all dead because like the only villain you have right now is are these real life threats, you yeah, know? yeah. Uh, and then of course, as he's talking and they're talking about death and the Egyptian motif and all that kind of stuff, the 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 assassin appears out of nowhere, unfortunately kills the uh, the secretary. And then, of course, Vite stops him, but he's not able to stop the guy from um, from killing himself, you know, with the uh, cyanide you know, poison capsule. Oh, I think so, I think Adrian's actually putting the cyanide capsule in his mouth. Well, he is. I just didn't want to tell the, the <laughs> listeners that. I'm, I'm I'm playing it up as if you know, like as we're reading through. But right. <laughs> oh, they they know by the, if if they're watching this, they know by now. This is spoiler heavy, so. <laughs> It's kind of funny how these cops are there and they're like, you know, Mr. Vice, stand back. We can handle it. Really? Really? <laughs> really rent a gun? Do you think that you can handle it a more than, than, than Vite? Uh, okay, um, well, let me ask my secretary about that. Oh, wait! And uh, I love this where the guy dies and then Vite sits down and he goes, um, call the toy people and cancel the extension of the Osmandius line. If they ask why, just tell them. I don't have any enemies. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I love that. You know, it's like, tell them I don't have any enemies. Um, but you know, the other part of that mm-hmm. is so he's got the meeting of the toy people. We know that this is all a setup. So this guy was coming here at that time. 
um, Rice is meeting with, meeting with the toy people. We know that he's going to, you know, miss killing Adrian and Adrian's going to kill him. Right. And then what he says here in the last panel is call the toy people and cancel the extension of the Osmandius line if they ask why tell them I don't have any enemies. So at that point, what he does is he stops the Osmandius toy line. Mm-hmm. Or and, the extension of it. Right. Well, I mean, if you stop the same, you're not, you're not making any more toys, right? Because right, we've right. decided that that's it. But he, what he's also doing is the Osmandius toys serve to do what? The, I don't they're know. action figures. Yeah. So you take them and you play with them and you the good guy fights the bad guy. Right. They just said they needed more bad guys for them to beat up. I'm stopping the toy line. What I'm also doing is I'm stopping this idea, this notion of kids fighting, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like the bad guys. Because where I'm taking us now is in this to this new era. We've got to take that that old mindset and put it away. Otherwise, we're going to perpetuate and keep carrying that over into this new world. Right, right. So then I'm like, yeah, I don't have any enemies. We're going to cancel the toy line here. And, you know, and uh, and even the thing where it's like this whole thing. So I think he says that this whole thing was was because of Rorschach. Because like, oh, because your whole mass killer theory. Right, right? There was right. no other reason for this guy to show up there except for to kind of keep Rorschach, you know, kind of thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Or to be like, oh, maybe maybe that's really what's going on. Don't dig any, any uh, deeper. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was just to throw Rorschach off the scent. And so, man, of course, it, you know, he puts it to a, to his advantage. That, But that whole thing there is like... You know, I don't have any enemies. Like he doesn't. He doesn't have any enemies. Even if this guy was trying to kill mass killer, you know, it was a mass killer thing. It's, he's not an enemy. He's just a, right. he's, he's just a guy that's like I don't think that he, you know, whatever reason these guys should have existed or, or or something. But Rorschach's mass killer theory, though, is only shared amongst them because nobody else except for them knows that Blake was a comedian. Right. right. You know, so this is just a, a random thing to everybody else. It's not even a vil- an, an enemy. It's just like that whole like the is like I don't everybody loves Vite. You never hear a bad word about it. Even when the when the um like in the movie that when he's being interviewed, um, because it's not in the book, mm-hmm. and and he goes, and the guy's saying all this stuff and and Vite goes, I'm not hearing a question. You know, the guy's just tell all this stuff. He's like, Yeah, but you do you have a question for me? Right. You know? right. Uh-huh. Like, so it's like so all of that is like he really is you know, not necessarily loved, but respected among everybody. Right, right. And he's, he's all, it's, and I think almost in a sense where he's looked up to by people because he is the self-made guy. You know, he's the guy that's ushered us all in there. And of course, you know, we find out, you know, he's the guy that's also bringing us clean energy. Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't say clean energy because I think during this time there's not technically like dirty energy, but he's the guy that's bringing us, you know, unlimited, you know, bountiful in, uh, yeah, energy. Yeah. The electric cars and all that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then he's he's back out of the picture for a lot of it because so much of it is uh, them getting back into the action and performing the jailbreak. Which is interesting because it's not... You know, all, all him not being a part of anything or being out of the picture, you know... It's not by chance. It's it's because like a, a true puppeteer, you don't see the puppeteer. You mm-hmm. just see the puppets. Right. And right. you know he shows up long enough, and then he's gone. 
So I just got to say, you, you saw that just then, right? And I don't think everyone knows that before. Yeah. As we're watching the Watchmen movie, we actually get to the point where um, where s- comedian just burned the, the, the map. Yeah. And of course, Osmanis is starting to formulate his plan here. But did you see his lighter? Yeah, it had the Silk Spectre on it. Right. Yeah, I'd never noticed that before. So yeah, that's really cool. So, um... Or, or, or I guess, considering what he tried to do to Silk Spectre, it's a little fucked up, but... Nice. <laughs> Very nice. So, just pointing out in the book here, um, this is, uh, was it, um, chapter eight, and it's, uh, Hollis Mason is, uh, making his pumpkin, um, because, of course, it's getting to be Halloween, and after he get, carves the pumpkin out and he puts the candle inside, there's a bit of pumpkin gut that's fallen on the outside of the pumpkin, and, of course, it's the bloody smiley face. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy how many places that's hidden. I notice it more and more every time I read it. So w- while all this is going on, you know, and they're breaking like uh, they're breaking Rorschach out of prison and and everything else, um, you know, Vite's doing his thing. He he's there. He's doing his thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I was gonna say the uh, the one thing that is Vite. But we're we're not talking about because it's not Vite, but it is Vite. Um, are the missing people? Oh yeah, yeah the uh, the artists and the scientists and the writers. Yeah. So I think that now will probably be a good time to uh, to kind of uh, draw this to a close, and we'll start the next episode off with the missing people. Sounds good. All right. All right, so uh, check us out next time for part two of uh, of our evaluation of, of the smartest man on the cinder, possibly homosexual, <laughs> possibly. Remind <laughs> me to investigate that later. The guy who has no enemies. <laughs> All right, everybody. My name is Turk One Eighty Two, and I'm a Comey. And uh, we will catch you next time. Uh, the Watchman Files, Osmandius Part Two. Bye, y'all. Dang, yo. All right there, folks. That was Our Moms Think We're Funny. Let's, uh, let's give them a hand.